Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 190. Rachel is not with us today. On today's show, I talk about the new science of archaeoecology with guests Stephanie Crabtree and Jennifer Doon. Let's dig a little deeper into this brand new science. Before we get to the interview, here's a little bit about our guests. Stephanie Crabtree is Assistant Professor in Social Environmental Modeling in the Department of Environment and Society of the Aquini College of Natural Resources at Utah State University and the ASU SFI Center for Biosocial Complex Systems Fellow at Santa Fe Institute. Her research applies complex systems science modeling methodologies such as agent-based modeling and network science to problems in social science and ecology. Current research topics include the human place in ecosystems worldwide, the ability to use the archaeological past to calibrate our understanding of human resilience, and the feedbacks between ecosystems, health, and human health. Crabtree holds two PhDs, one from Washington State University, Anthropology, 2016, and one from the Université de Frenchy Comte, <laughs> Maison des Sciences, De la Homme et l'Environnement, 2017. I can't pronounce any of that. She additionally holds external affiliation at three institutions, Research Associate at Crow Canyon Archaeological Center, Affiliate at the Archaeology Center of Utah State University, and Research Associate at the Australian Research Council Center of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage. Jennifer Dunn is the Vice President for Science at the Santa Fe Institute, where she joined the faculty in 2007. Dunn has degrees in Philosophy, AB, Harvard, Ecology and Systematic Biology, MA, San Francisco State University, and Energy and Resources, PhD, University of California, Berkeley. Her research uses cross-system analysis and computational modeling to identify fundamental patterns and principles of ecological network structure and dynamics at multiple spatial and temporal scales. She uses this framework to explore the coexistence of species and ecological robustness, persistence, and stability with a current focus on coupled nature-human systems and paleobiological systems. Dunn was named a fellow of the Ecological Society of America in 2017 and the Network Science Society in 2020. As I said, Rachel isn't with us today. She's off in North Carolina and doesn't have a microphone, <laughs> so it's just going to be me. I'm still in Reno. It's the Reno National Championship Air Races this week. We have a brand new RV. If you don't follow us on Instagram, check out Roadster Adventures, and that's R-O-D-S-T-E-R Adventures at Instagram, and you can see what we're going to post about it. Only a couple things up there as of this recording, but hopefully more later. So anyway, let's get on to our interview. Welcome to the show, Stephanie Crabtree and Jennifer Dunn. Hi, it's very nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. All right. So we found you guys because we were contacted about a paper that you guys wrote recently and talking about a basically a new science of archaeoecology. So why don't we 
start by just defining, you know, what is archaeoecology? Just from a real basic sense, we're really going to get into this later and how you guys got into it. But just so we can at the top of the show, what's the what's the quick elevator pitch for what archaeoecology actually is? So I think paleoecology is a defined field that people have been studying for a long time. And paleoecology looks at preserved remains from paleoecological context. So a long time ago, what those ecosystems looked like and as a partner for modern ecology. So how do we understand things that happened a hundred thousand years ago, 60,000 years ago, and how does that compare till now with modern ecology? But I'm an archeologist and when you excavate, you know that you find lots of ecological remains that people transported back to mm-hmm. their settlements in middens or in house contexts. And so there's all of this ecological stuff from the archaeological record. And I've been thinking for a while that this kind of deserves its own definition because it can provide this gap between paleoecology and modern ecology. The archaeological right. record, which we know there is tons of out there. Jennifer, did you want to add anything? Well, I'll, I'll say it a little differently. I'll do more of the elevator pitch type of thing, too. Okay. And this kind of gets back to the highlights of our paper, which is that ecology really focuses on understanding primarily present-day ecosystems, the species in them, their interactions. And archaeology tends to it focuses on the history and prehistory of humans and human systems. But there's a lot of work arising now that really seeks to integrate them and integrate them in a very deep way. And so we're trying to put our finger on that kind of emerging deep integration by using this term archaeoecology. Okay. So, I mean, I'm willing to bet that archaeologists, you know, anytime a new say term is is coined or something like that, there's a good chance that that as archaeologists, we've been doing this kind of thing for a while, but it's never really been formalized. You know, we've been collecting data. We've been, you know, analyzing data and coming up with conclusions and doing different things, writing papers, doing all the things that archaeologists do, but without really naming this aspect of it. Is that the case here, you know, where, where we're, we're really just kind of defining this, I guess, set of principles around archaeoecology? Or are you guys really maybe bringing in different tools and different sciences to to absolutely develop a new field or maybe aspects of this new field? Well, I think the way that you described it, it's kind of a little of both. Honestly, mm-hmm. we say in the paper early on that this isn't anything new, that this has been a grassroots way that archaeologists and ecologists and paleoecologists have been looking at things for a long time. But as you say, people are doing this without this umbrella overarching everything. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that we definitely say is that the time is right now for using all of this data that we have acquired and these computational approaches, which a lot of them come from ecology, to really have this more synthetic understanding of humans and ecosystems and ecosystems during human time And using that to really define this field. And so in a way, it's a little bit of both. People have been doing this research for decades. I mean, you could go all the way back to Graham Clark, the 1940s with his eco-archaeology, which was kind of a little bit like this. But now with the tools, with the computational modeling approaches that we can do, it really is 
its own approach, its own sub-discipline that I think is very unique and is unique from environmental archaeology because it can look at things in a more holistic way and look at that full ecosystem from the archaeological standpoint. Just to add to that a little bit, and just to emphasize, I think, you know, as Stephanie says, archaeologists have been collecting data relevant for understanding the ecology environment for, you know, decades, as long as archaeology has been around. But this kind of emphasis on trying to understand the whole ecological context, you know, not just a few species or certain kinds of species is what we're really driving at. And also, you know, as Stephanie mentioned, there's been a lot of advances, especially on the ecology side in terms of the kinds of modeling approaches that we can bring to bear on understanding ecosystems and also theory like metabolic scaling theory. And these are all things that we see opportunities for really advancing work that is truly um, at the intersection of ecology and archaeology. Okay. You know, this is all reminding me of something I, I, I didn't work on this, but uh, it was it was near something I worked on probably back in 2005 or so. When I went over to Africa, I went with a different expedition to, to Olduvai Gorge, and we stayed in the Leaky Camp mm-hmm. and that whole thing. And, and the professor that was running the excavation I was on was part of a project with Rutgers University that they called the, mm-hmm. I'm going to get this wrong, I think it was the OLAP project, the Olduvai Landscape Paleoanthropology Project or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what they were, their tagline was, you know, the Leakies and others had dug, you know, vertically through Olduvai Gorge and had a good chronology vertically, but we didn't know much horizontally about the landscape of Olduvai Gorge. And so that's where you yeah. get the, the landscape paleoanthropology. So is this like similar, but more defined, like landscape archaeology that, that I've heard that term in the past? Well, I think that a lot of these really long-term archaeological projects, place-based archaeological projects that look at the depth of the history there, um, Olduvai Gorge, Chateaulhoye, mm-hmm. for example, um, these places that you can really get deep stratigraphic information going down in time, but also the kind of breadth across the ecosystem is definitely adding to our understanding of past ecosystems. And so I think that what you bring up is a piece in it. It is a type of project that could be considered archaeoecology, definitely. Looking at that ecological context of hominins back in the past and how those hominins are related to their ecosystems through time and how that changes with the different hominins. You know, that is a very archaeoecological approach. So again, you know, what we suggest, it isn't necessarily 100% new because people have been looking at these kinds of questions for a long time, but it's defining it and giving it its own raison d'etre, if you will, and being able to call it out as its own word. And a lot of the reactions that I've gotten so far, mostly on Twitter, have been from younger archaeologists who are using archaeology and paleoanthropology and doing some ecological modeling. And I've been getting private messages from people saying they were excited to have one word to call what they did because they didn't (laughs) have that because they're doing so many of these things. They're bringing in dendrochronology and they're doing a zooarchaeological analysis of some of the fauna. And all of these things can come together. 
it's an ecological approach with an archaeological lens. Nice. I like that. Yeah, that's it's good to put a, a word on it because, you know, I, I've been in CRM archaeology for a long time and, you know, we go out and, and there's there's research done ahead of time. So we know what we can expect to find you know, typically. And we might have some specialists come out if there's an excavation or something like that. And it's nice to be able to have that framework, I guess, rather than just throwing a bunch of tools and things at a, at a project and just kind of picking up what you can. If you know what you're looking for and you have a set of principles and, and like I said, a framework around something, then you can you can gather together the resources you would need to adequately collect that data, I think. And that's what that's what's nice about having this sort of framework, even though we may have been doing this for a long time having it sort of codified, so to speak, <laughs> is uh, helpful. So you can almost have a, a checklist say, hey, we should be looking at this, 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 and this, and we have, should have these people on site and, and collecting this kind of data. You know, I think archaeologists have, you know, done a really outstanding job of thinking about the environment, you know, the climate and, you know, sort of the environmental context. By using the term ecology here and the ecological context, it's really shining a light on species and species interactions and you know how humans are not only interacting with other species but you know all those species are also interacting with each other and so the degree to which you can start to take that as a framework and try to understand more about and that's what you know I mean and I think we mean with uh taking a comprehensive ecological perspective mm -hmm. you know you can learn much more about you know, how humans are fitting into and impacting, you know, uh, the ecosystem, the environment, and also how the ecology and the environment is impacting and constraining humans and human society. I think also as disciplines become more interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, that having this term and having this checklist, as you had said, it legitimizes this type of work. It gives a place for this type of work for students who are interested in pursuing it, for funding agencies, for things like that. That's what I think really was one of the guiding principles for why we wanted to write this, because this is work that Jennifer Dunn and I have been doing separately and together for the better part of a decade, and if not longer. So this this paper really kind of legitimizes this approach that so many people have been doing and gives gives this checklist for doing this comprehensive ecological approach. Okay. Well, with that, I think we'll take our first break and come back on the other side back in a minute. Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 190. And I'm talking to Stephanie and Jennifer here about a new science called archaeoecology. And I want to back up real quick and just ask, what got you guys together, right? You, you guys are in, are in different locations physically, but in academia, that doesn't really matter. So what brought you guys together to write this paper and talk about archaeoecology? Well, we're only sort of in different locations, actually, because I am also a fellow of the Santa Fe Institute. So I spend time... Right. In, at the Santa Fe Institute regularly. But even before mm-hmm. then, I was working with Jennifer Dunn. Mm-hmm. So we, many years ago, Jennifer and I had started a working group. Jennifer was working on a project with Jenny Kahn and Pat Kirch, looking at the humans and ecosystems in French Polynesia. And Jennifer was interested in bringing some people together to kind of talk about that and talk about some other systems. Am I recalling this correctly, Jen? Yeah, I mean, I can I can chime in too. <laughs> I mean, it, it I mean, it actually predates that, of course, because in some sense, I got pulled into a project funded by NSF based in the Aleutian Islands of Alaska. That was a collaboration between archaeologists and ecologists and and as a result of that work, I ended up doing uh, kind of my, my first archaeoecology project on how Aleutian hunter-gatherers uh, fit into and impacted uh, the food web up uh, in Sanak Island. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, Stephanie was pursuing her PhD, and, uh, and she can talk about this separately, but was doing uh, some humans and food web work of her own and with an advisor who's actually affiliated with SFI. But as Stephanie mentioned, I got pulled into another project with archaeologists based in French Polynesia. And we were trying to think about the kinds of ecological data and analyses we could bring to bear on understanding the biocomplexity of uh, Polynesian islands through time. Hmm. And so, um, as Stephanie mentioned, she and I got talking about it because we already knew of our overlapping interests with humans and food webs and pulled this working group together. So, staff, why don't you take that yeah. further down the road? <laughs> yeah. So, so as Jennifer mentioned, as part of my dissertation, one of the chapters of my dissertation was looking at the food webs of ancestral Pueblo people in the central Mesa Verde area. And so I had been aware of Jennifer's work on the Aleutian food webs and thought, well, this is really interesting. And this would be a really great way to understand the 700 years of people living in this ecosystem before they migrated away. And so I started compiling food webs for my dissertation. And that 
began this big project. So I had been coming down to the Santa Fe Institute for little, you know, week long stays. My American PhD advisor is external faculty at, at SFI, Tim Kohler. Mm-hmm. And so I would go down with him and we'd, you know, do some work. And during one of these times was when I started talking with Jennifer Dunn about these possibilities for other other kinds of studies, things that she was involved in. And I was going to be moving to do a postdoc at Pennsylvania State, where I worked with Doug and Rebecca Bird, who work in the Western Desert of Australia and compiled a food web there. And so we started putting together this little working group to look at the biocomplexity of humans in, in ecosystems in a few places worldwide. And Jennifer Dunn and I applied for a grant through the Coalition for Archaeological Synthesis, and we were one of the first grantees. And our project we called the Archaeoecology Project. Hmm. And we brought together researchers in six areas worldwide to look at the human place in ecosystems through time and try and analyze it, use tools from ecology and data from archaeology and look at this in a different way. A lot of these places... People have been doing archaeology for decades, if not over a century, such as the American Southwest. Right. And so it's it's a different way of looking at things. And it's a different way to really ask questions about sustainability. You know, I really do think that modern ecology obviously is a byproduct of tens of thousands of years of human ecology interaction. And so we need to do archaeoecology projects like this to look at what is happening today because what's happening today is contingent upon what happened in the past. Awesome. I'm interested in when you mentioned, you know, you brought together different researchers, you know, to, to get this project done. What, what kind of backgrounds or specialties do people need to have if you're really going to advance on an archaeoecology or archaeoecological project? Who do you need to bring in to really do that? Or does it just depend on the environment in the area that you're in? I mean, I think it would be depending upon the environment. I don't yeah. I don't want to, you know, have somebody write down and be like, okay, and these are <laughs> the checklists of who we need to invite based right. on what Stephanie Crabtree and Jennifer Dunn say, which is I don't think the intention of your question, but still. Right. In in general terms though, you know, bringing in different specialists in different, you know, overall fields. We brought together anthropologists, archaeologists, archaeologists both in an academic setting and CRM archaeologists. Okay. We brought in geologists. We had ecologists, quite obviously. And that was for our project. Many of us work with traditional knowledge holders in all of these places, which I think is absolutely critical. And so working with descendant communities and working with people in these regions who have a deep knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so for these projects, I think, you know, we really, we really think that these projects need types of computational modeling to be able to understand in a quantitative framework, the human place in these ecosystems. So you need people with quantitative skills to be able to look at these models and understand the assumptions, but you also need the archeological experts who understand the assumptions that were made in the excavations or in the surveys. And, you know, so it's really just a, who are the experts in where you want to work and who has different, different skill sets that can come together. 
And so that's why we work with a geologist in this, because he has a very, he leads the Icelandic case study, but he has a very deep understanding of how the geomorphology impacts the ecosystems in Iceland, which mm-hmm. it turns out is a very key thing for understanding ecosystems in, in Iceland. And so okay. it's, it's really just a question of doing the best to have a really interdisciplinary framework to bring together the knowledge holders who can work on this together um, toward a common goal. And let me give another example. A former postdoc at SFI who's now a faculty member at UC Merced is a guy named Justin Yakel. And he led a project, which I consider to be an archaeoecological project, which has to do about ecological networks of Egypt, of ancient Egypt. But his training is his background's in paleobiology. Mm-hmm. But as he went along in his career, he also got very interested in ecology and ecological modeling. So he brought kind of that expertise to bear, but with a team that included people with expertise in ancient Egypt funerary art, for example, which has a ton of ecological information on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, it's like, as Stephanie said, depending on the project or the question, you know, in that case, you know, <laughs> experts in ancient Egyptian art are relevant, you know, to do an archaeoecology project. Paleobiology is relevant. Yeah. So, you know, I also host the Archaeotech podcast and we, we always talk about the intersection of technology and archaeology and different technological things. And one of the things my co-host and I have kind of stopped doing is saying the phrase digital archaeology, right? Because kind of all archaeology is digital at this point. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. like, why even say that? And I'm kind of leading to the same thing with archaeoecology. Like, why? Like, sh- sh- that, and it's almost like that should just be archaeology. Like, how can you understand anything about the site you're working on if you don't understand the ecological context with which it sits? You know what I mean? I mean, I do agree with you, but I do think <laughs> that as an archaeologist who has been guilty of this, I think that a lot of archaeological <laughs> projects look at a couple species that humans interact very strongly with. Yeah. How do we look at a site in a certain place and understand, you know, the three or four taxa that people were hunting, you know, and we count mm-hmm. the bones and we say, this is the number of identified specimens. And, and that work is really critical. But one of the things that that is missing is saying, and what were these taxa interacting with? And why does it matter if, say, deer decrease in population? What's that going to do to the grasses and the trees? And what will that in turn do to the voles? And, you know, all those kinds of things. And so, In this way, one of the things that we are suggesting is that by looking at what shows up in a midden beyond those key taxa, so what Mm -hmm. are all of the taxa, what are all of the paleo or archaeological botanical remains telling you, and how can we connect those into an ecosystem? Sure. I think that's critical. And I think the other thing is that as an archaeologist, I've been guilty of is using the term environment to mean Mm -hmm. ecosystem. Right. And that's, I think, a, a little thing. But I think that when you are interacting with other scientific disciplines, that understanding the vocabulary is important. And so archaeoecology doesn't just look at the abiotic environment, the rainfall and things like that. It can. But it also looks at all of the different species and kind of takes it away from a human centric viewpoint to humans as a part of 
this larger ecological space that people mm-hmm. lived within. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking too of of things that we may not be able to find in the archaeological record from an ecological standpoint, but that somebody who's a specialist in well, environment and, and, you know, plants and, and all kinds of things might be able to tell us. I'm just thinking, you know, everybody on this that listens to this show knows that's a longtime listener that my wife and I travel around the country in an RV. And I'll tell you what, sometimes we are in places where you can't even go outside because the mosquitoes or other bugs are just <laughs> relentless. And I, I just like to imagine when I'm sitting on, a, on an archaeological site where that's happening to me, I'm like, what was this happening environmentally? Like, you know, 6,000 mm-hmm. years ago right here? Or was it a different, was it different ecologically in that, you know, maybe there weren't any, you know, annoying bugs around <laughs> in this area <laughs> and things have changed since then? Because you can't really see those in the archaeological record. They just wouldn't survive. But you might be able to see the landscape in which uh, an, a bug or an insect or some other type of animal could survive. But you need to bring in specialists to be able to tell you that. And then, you know, maybe look at some things through that kind of a lens. And we yeah. can use uh, our understanding of modern ecosystems to, sure. you know, make sensible, you know, assumptions or hypotheses about, mm-hmm. you know, what might have gone on under different environmental conditions or, you know, whatever the uh, distant past context is. And yeah. one of the ways that I like to think about all of this is, you know, when when humans come onto a landscape, when they move when they moved into different landscapes or places over deep time, they're presented with you know new climates, new environments, the new abiotic environments, and those environments provide both constraints and opportunities for how humans can operate there. But mm-hmm. the ecology, the species that are there, the habitats that are there, how they interact, also provide constraints and opportunities. And then, of course, the humans themselves are bringing their culture and their own, you know, kind of constraints and opportunities for interacting with the other species at the system and also to deal with the environment. So ideally, we're linking all three of these things, the abiotic environment, the biotic ecological context, and then this, you know, what the humans bring to bear on the system. Right. And I think your example of going to swampy places and being eaten by mosquitoes is actually a really good example for thinking about ecological change. So I mm. lived in the island of Samoa in 2004, 2005, and nice. there are tons and tons of mosquitoes there. But mosquitoes were not there 500 years ago, but people were. Um, Captain Cook likely brought mosquitoes with him to many of the Polynesian islands. And so one of the things that an archaeoecological standpoint could do, even if we cannot find mosquitoes in the archaeological record, when we dig up middens in Samoa, you know, we're not going to be finding mosquitoes there necessarily, (laughs) unless they're preserved in amber in some weird Jurassic Park kind of way. If you find a layer of mosquitoes, it was really bad. (laughs) It was really, really bad. (laughs) <laughs> but one thing an archaeoecological approach could do is we could model the Samoan islands before yeah. the arrival of colonizers. What was the ecosystem like? What what mm-hmm. do we find archaeologically in the middens? What can we make hypotheses about that were there that we didn't see, like the invertebrates? And then we can look at after the arrival of white colonizers. 
how did the ecosystem change? And one of the big ecosystem changes is mosquitoes. And we know that mosquitoes have led to lots of bird deaths in some of the Polynesian islands. And so we could look at that and we could hypothesize that and we could excavate for, do we see declining populations of some bird species? Mm. And in that way, we could actually model your mosquito problem. Like what, (laughs) how did the ecosystem change over time? I mean, these are real questions that we can ask. And they're important questions because we're dealing with species loss today with global climate change. And so what is that going to do? Are there going to be places that mosquitoes go into? Yes, because things are getting warmer. So what do we see archaeologically when a mosquito enters an ecosystem? And what can that tell us about what may happen in other ecosystems? That's, I think, where this really comes together. And I, I love your yeah. mosquito analogy. <laughs> you know, as, as I just close out this segment here, that's one of the things that's always frustrated me about archaeology is, yeah, we're digging up stuff and we're we're finding things, but we're finding the things that people either left behind or, you know, the things that died there and and the things that were discarded in some cases, you know, and we can see how they interacted with the, the landscape in some ways if you find like a hearth or, you know, some other chemical signature of something, but those real questions about what was it like for the, for people living right there. Uh, you just sometimes can't answer that by just digging into the ground right there. You got to look farther out and look at other systems. So with that, I think we'll take our final break and we'll come back and wrap up this discussion on the other side. Back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 190. That's our third and final segment. And I'm talking to Stephanie Crabtree and Jennifer Dunn. and. We're going to talk about just a few things to wrap up this discussion on archaeoecology next. And first thing, again, is, is sort of a sort of a self-serving question as a CRM archaeologist. And as a CRM archaeologist, even working here in Nevada and like in the eastern Mojave of the of Southern California, and those big areas where they're they're just these massive landscapes, we still only have clearance to look at typically small areas of land. Even if it's a, you know, a 5,000 acre survey, I mean, you're surrounded by literally millions of acres of open land. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we don't often have the ability to go look outside of that. And it's even worse if you're doing an excavation, say, in an urban setting or, you know, an excavation somewhere for like, you know, CRM archaeologists are always working for like a Walmart, you know, plot of land or something like that. And we don't have the ability to look outside of that. What would you say to somebody who comes to you and says, you know, archaeoecology is great and all, but how do I do that on this one little thing where I don't even have the ability to, to physically 
go out and do any analysis outside of this area. All I can do is research and maybe engage other people that have done research, but we can't do any work outside there because the permits just aren't there. Well, so I think that a lot of what we suggest in this paper is that a lot of archaeoecology is actually working with data that already exists Mm -hmm. or data that you're gathering in a specific context. Archaeology that you can't survey everything. You can't dig <laughs> everything. It's unsustainable. However, yeah. I also worked in CRM between undergraduate and graduate school. And mm-hmm. one of the projects I, I worked on was the Keystone XL pipeline um, oh, yeah. when I worked for SWCA out of Denver. And mm-hmm. we had archaeologists and we had biologists. And biologists were out there surveying for specific endangered species that live there now. But an approach that we could have done archaeologically, because we found many, many sites, is we could have looked at archaeologically what we found, and we could have linked that to what we saw as the ecology of the time and how that influences the ecology today. Mm-hmm. Where is the black-footed ferret today? What is their range? What was their historical range? And what would we maybe see archaeologically if we were to look for that. So that would be one way to do that. In terms of what you're talking about, where you're in a small 5,000 hectare plot within the greater Mojave landscape, you don't need to survey the entire landscape, but you have Mm -hmm. data that gives you an idea of the people who were living there. And Once you are able to compile some of these databases of what the greater ecosystem looked like, you can kind of, I don't know, have a a little chunk that you care about. And in your reports, you can call on these greater understandings of the ecology and how that that archaeoecology links to the modern ecology. And Mm -hmm. so I think that it can be incredibly useful for CRM archaeologists, especially because CRM often works in tandem with biological surveys. And so we are looking at things that happened in the past and things that happened today. And maybe you're only caring about this tiny little bit, but it gives you a probability of what you would find ecologically in the past. Okay, nice. Jennifer, anything to add to that? No, you two are the CRM experts. I am not. (laughs) But I mean, I I think uh, Stephanie, you know, articulated it well. And, you know, I don't I don't think either of us is saying, you know, that all archaeology is archaeoecology. The same as, you know, archaeoecology is one aspect of ecology. You know, it's just it's that really, you know, intensive intersection and integration that gives you more insight both into the archaeology and the ecology. So one example is my brother works for the Fremont Wynema National Forest in Oregon. And within this forest, you have Fort Rock. And in Fort Rock is where we found human coprolites, not we, but we being the royal we of all archaeology, human coprolites that go back thousands and thousands of years. And we can look at that and in at Fort Rock, it's a very, it's, it's the high desert. It's a very deserty place. And so you go there and it's hard to imagine what it looked like 10,000 years ago. But mm-hmm. the archaeology tells us that it was a wetter area. An archaeoecological standpoint from the Forest Service or CRM doing work down there 
could be looking at those connections of that full ecosystem, could be rebuilding what that ecosystem likely looked like. What are the marshes? What does the pollen that we find in the coprolites tell us about the trees that were there? And that can give us a greater understanding for when we go forward and do more CRM or forest service surveys of the things that we might be expected to find. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, I think it can be really important. And then we can look at those critical transitions of how that ecosystem got drier over time and why does it look like how it looks today? And so we can have that long-term lens. And in that way, I think that this really does speak to CRM type reports where sometimes when you're doing CRM, it can feel like you're just doing compliance, but you're not. You're gathering so much data about people in the past and ecosystems in the past. And this data is critical for understanding the human place and ecosystems today and how our ecosystems are changing and what we might expect to see as ecosystems change more. Right. That is so well put because, I mean, on literally every project I've ever run and anytime I I was a crew chief before I was, you know, project manager and running my own company, I always told people, because I myself get frustrated sometimes when you're like, oh man, another two flake lithic scatter, like who cares about this one flake or these two flakes? Because in Nevada, two artifacts is a site and you can do all yep. this work to do that. <laughs> but you know what? It, it adds to the database and it's yeah. it's looking at the bigger picture and the bigger data picture. And I've always said that as well. Like there's a good chance no human being will ever see these artifacts again because a who's going to come out here and survey who's randomly going to find what you just found because we're not collecting anything so who's ever going to see that again and depending on the project you're working for it may actually be destroyed by development depending on what you're doing so we're the last people to ever see this so collect as much data as you possibly can take Take more pictures than you think you need to write down more about it than you think you need to. And along those same lines, engage more people and specialists and research in the area than you think you might need to, because we're like the last line of defense, (laughs) to put it bleakly. (laughs) You know, when I'm when I'm at weddings or whatever and people ask what I do and I say I'm an archaeologist, they always ask, what's the most interesting thing you've ever found? And they have this on a big plaque at Crow Canyon Archaeological Center. It's not what you find. It's what you find out. But I think we really are beyond this, you know, Indiana Jones finding some fancy (laughs) artifact thing. I mean, finding a fancy artifact will get you in the New York Times, but it doesn't necessarily add more to our understanding of humanity, of the depth of humanity. And so finding those two flakes can tell you something about where people were, where people watched Mm -hmm. you. Perhaps there's residue on those flakes because they used them because flakes are better for, you know, winnowing a reed than than a projectile point is. And so all of that data that you can get is just so much more important for understanding. It's maybe not as sexy as finding, you know, some big thing, but I think it is because I like data. Exactly. And and if you don't like data as an archaeologist, then at this point, you're probably in the wrong field. And I, <laughs> another thing I realized really early on, and you guys are just making this all that much more real, is I think before I even went into CRM archaeology and I did that field school in Olduvai Gorge, you get out there and you're looking for stuff and they're like, you know, it's all about the rocks, 
right? It's all about the rocks, yeah. especially there because it was all fossilized. But then I get onto my first project and we're talking soils and we're talking, you know, where the river was, where we were digging and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, where's the archaeology? Where are the people? And it's like, well, it's all about the landscape and, and where the people lived. And, you know, archaeologists have to be, I feel like they think they have to be specialists in a lot of things where in reality, we have to have a network of specialists that are our best friends. <laughs> so we can call them and say, hey, what does all this mean? I'm bringing all this together. We're synthesizers more than anything else. I think so. I think that a lot of archaeology is having an understanding of so many different fields. Because if you're going to understand how people lived in the past, you've mm -hmm. got to have a basic understanding of psychology and sociology, oh, yeah. anthropology, of course. So much. You have to understand geomorphology when you're excavating, all of these things. These are all these fields we have to synthesize together. Mm -hmm. And ecology is another one of them. Absolutely. All right. Well, as we're nearing the end of this, I want to find out now that we've been talking about all this, if if somebody is listening to this and they want to go into anthropology or archaeology as a as an undergraduate major, or maybe they're in their undergraduate program, they want to go on and get a master's degree. If somebody wanted to specialize in archaeoecology, what does that even mean, first off? And, <laughs> and while we're talking about that, or do you know of any programs that may not call it that, but that maybe are would give somebody that kind of focus uh, to go into as a career? Yeah. So my tenure track home is not an anthropology department. It's mm -hmm. the Department of Environment and Society at Utah State University. Okay. And there are a few different places that do this. There's the School of Environment and Sustainability at University of Michigan. At Penn State, there's a dual title program with something along the lines of environment and society. So there are different places that are looking at this, but I think that the big thing is you need to look at anthropology departments or departments like the Department of Environment and Society where people are doing computational modeling and are looking at data from an archaeological context, and that may be kind of scattered. Um, mm -hmm. Arizona State University's School for Human Environment and Social Change, I think is what it's called, SHUSC. Mm -hmm. They are a place that is definitely doing some of this work, but it is grassroots. And so it's looking for advisors who would support you in synthesizing, in getting the training in computational modeling, in R, in paleobiology as an archaeology masters, you know, those kinds of things where you can get that kind of training, that flexibility. And so I think that for a while it's going to be a little grassrootsy of trying to figure out where these things are, where are the faculty, where are the questions. But I think whenever anyone applies to grad school, it's like that. You're you're looking at, you're reading papers that interest you and contacting faculty and saying, these are my crazy ideas. Do you like my crazy ideas? And <laughs> seeing how that goes. Yeah. The other thing is that the National Science Foundation has a number of, over the last 10 or 15 years, has been doing funding in areas that basically encompass aspects of archaeoecology. They, and I got involved through that avenue, through a biocomplexity project, you know, in the Aleutian Islands, and then through a, a coupled natural human systems project based in French Polynesia. And there have been other, you know, kind of funding calls that are really getting at this integration of ecology, environment, and human systems. Uh, not just in the past, but in the present day also. And so the 
And people are getting that money and doing projects. And that is literally how I got drawn into the archaeological world and now the archaeoecological world. Okay, awesome. Sounds like there's some different ways to do it. And you, you shouldn't just look at, say, anthropology departments and uh, and archaeology departments, if those are a thing, and, and look a little more broadly. So I'm wondering, now that you guys have this paper, and, and it was recently published, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. And I know how papers work. You probably finished it six months, if not a year ago, <laughs> before it got published. So, so what, if, if there's anything you can discuss, are you guys collaborating or even working independently on more stuff specifically in the archaeoecology space? I think we have two pages of notes of titles of papers that we're working on in our <laughs> yeah. working group. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do have papers coming down the pike and Stephanie is involved in a bunch. Yeah. uh, With different Mm -hmm. configurations of authors. We have one that may be, I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but we submitted a paper to Global Environmental Change and it's in Mm -hmm. its final review process. And if that comes out, I think that will be a very exciting archaeoecological paper. And if it doesn't come out in global environmental change, we'll submit it elsewhere and it'll be a site, exciting ecological paper elsewhere. <laughs> but yeah, we hey, have at we the have very least, lot. there could be a whole podcast about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then also, Stephanie, I mean, you've got the paper that's out with uh, Jenny Kahn. You've got the work with Philip Verhagen that's out. Yes. Most of our papers are open access. So okay. uh, last year I had a paper with Philip Verhagen as the lead author, um, B-E-R-H-A-G-E-N that used the archaeoecological project's lens of looking at how do people use biodiversity and how mm-hmm. that changed over time, looking at a site in Swiftabont in the Netherlands. That was a change between the LBK and the Neolithic. Okay. So we're looking at how did people in the linear band Keramik, who were by and large hunter-gatherers, How did they, when that lifestyle was basically replaced by Neolithic farmers, whether it was in situ development or replacement of population, still debated, but how did that end up changing the way that people interacted with the ecosystem? So that came out last year. And then I have Jenny Kahn, who's one of our main collaborators in the Archaeoecology Project, have a paper that came out with her in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution that looked at the human place in ecosystems and canoes the ways that people in Polynesia build canoes and all that. And then we have just so many papers coming up because we've been doing this comparative work from these six different sites. And so if you keep your ear to the ground for either Jennifer's or my name, you'll, you'll see them, nice. but also, you know, can, can email me and I can send you stuff or whatever. There you go. <laughs> and also uh, Jenny Kahn, along with Steph and I and Spencer Wood and, others. She's leading up a, a major paper that's being put together about this focuses on French Polynesian islands. And uh, it comes out of that NSF funded project, but, you know, kind of expands on it. And we're not just in that paper, not just looking at kind of how humans interact with other species through feeding, you know, food webs, mm-hmm. but looking at a whole wide variety of different types of interactions that Polynesians have and had with other species through time over the thousand years the Polynesians have been on the islands. Yeah. So that's that's one that's in the works. You know, that'll still be a while. There's lots to do on it still, but it's going to be a really cool paper. Yeah. And that, that framework that humans, not just what they eat, but 
making artifacts, making clothes, stuff like that. That framework we introduced in the Philip Verhagen paper. Okay. Even though in many ways, that was kind of a later system that we started analyzing, but it was one of the first that we were able to publish on. But a lot of these papers are looking at that that human place in ecosystems because we do so much more than just eat. You know, <laughs> we build houses and we have ritual and all that. And so we, yeah. with our project, we've been looking at that. But I'm very excited about the French Polynesia paper because it's been a long time coming. And then we'll have some comparative papers that look at that. My work in the Ancestral Pueblo Southwest, I have work building, new papers building on the Food Web paper that came out in 2017. And, you know, there's just a lot there. And you asked earlier about if students were interested. I am always recruiting really good students. So if anyone listens <laughs> to this and they think that they want to work with me because these crazy ideas match their crazy ideas, you know. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's about all the time we have. Uh, this has been a a really awesome discussion. And I hope as some of these new publications come out, we can, we can get you guys back on the podcast to talk about them and, and see if we can, we can generate some more interest for sure. But it, it just, I love the questions that this brings up and, you know, archeology span is all about answering questions and this just brings up more questions. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Again, thank you so much for having us. It's been yes. a lovely conversation. Yes. Thank you. This has been great. All right. And with that, we will see you guys next week and Rachel will be back on and we will, I'm sure, chat about something interesting. See you guys in a week. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.